Welcome to the Independent Advisors Podcast, where we dive into the world of stocks, tradable markets, and financial planning with Jessup Wealth Management's Chief Investment Officer, Mark McEvely, and CEO, Matt Jessup. You'll hear tips, tricks, and strategies to address your financial well-being, and most importantly, conveyed in a way that everyone can understand. Here are your hosts, Mark and Matt. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to episode number 139 of the Independent Advisors Podcast, where Matt Jessup and I, Mark McEvely, bring you everything you need to know from the past week in the world of financial markets and financial planning. So good morning, Matt. Morning, Mark. Never a dull moment in the markets with everything that's going on right now. No, no. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. A lot of news headlines going around out there. A lot of volatility and, you know, futures down overnight, up overnight, reverse intraday. A lot, of, a lot of stuff going on right now. Very fluid. Yeah, it is. It is. And I think it will be that way for, for a while here. So, um, But before we get into it today, as always, just want to take the first few minutes to recap the performance for the month and the year of the major indexes that we track. And these numbers are as of the market close on February 25th. And this data is from Coifin. S&P 500 index down 2.9% on the month and down 8% on the year. The Dow Jones uh, is down 3% on the month and 6.27% on the year. NASDAQ Composite Index is down 1.06% for the month and down 9.27% for the year. The IWM ETF that tracks the Russell 2000 Index is positive 0.63% for the month and down 9% on the year. So interesting to see relative strength out of small caps, which is a little abnormal because during periods of weakness, those tend to be the things that go down first, right? Yeah. I mean, if I had to throw out a guess with all the geopolitical action that the perception is small cap companies derive more of their revenues domestically in the U.S., my guess is a part of that narrative. Right, right. Um, Vanguard International ETF, X United States, down 1.7% for the month and down 5% on the year. So uh, international uh, outperforming on a relative basis uh, to U.S. markets. Three-month T-bill currently yielding 0.23%. The two-year Treasury yield sitting at 1.57%. And the 10-year Treasury yield is at 1.93%. Uh, Moving on to big news headlines or current events from the week. Uh, Consumer confidence report released on February 22nd by the conference board showed that the present situation index uh, touching or excuse me, improved uh, a little bit, suggesting that the economy uh, continued to expand in Q1 of 22. One item to note here is that the proportion of consumer planning to purchase homes, autos, major appliances, and vacations over the next six months has all fallen. Uh, the report was before the recent geopolitical news. So I think you're seeing um, the consumer more and, you know, constrained. I'm not going to chase that price. Yeah. Yeah. So this could help with inflation down the road. Too. And I think it will, Mark. We'll see. We'll see if it has follow through. It's one thing to sit there and say, I'm not going to do these things the next six months. And then, you know, things change and you might end up doing it. But this could help inflation over time. Right. Right. Uh, Michigan consumer sentiment was released on February 25th and came in at 62.8 for February, which was down from uh, 67.2 in January. The drop was primarily driven by households with incomes of 100 grand or more, a group that has significant impact on consumer spending. So what are you seeing there? That trend in multiple different surveys, the consumer, I still think, is in a very good position 
But you know what? I'm not going to chase that price. Just like I said earlier, I think you're going to see more of that. Yeah. Constrain. Yeah, for sure. Uh, lastly, the next key economic report is the February jobs report due out on this Friday That's a big at one. 830 in the morning. Uh, the forecast uh, as of February 25th is uh, 438,000 new jobs. That's so a big one. That'll be a big one. Yep. Yeah, big report. Uh, moving right along to tweets, articles, and research from the week. Uh, this first one was from our friend George Marutis on uh, January 24th of 22. Um, so he tweeted, don't mix your income with your investments. Okay. And he uh, tweeted like a little note from like an iPhone that said, on November 12th, Odell Beckham Jr. signed a deal with the Rams worth $750,000. He announced that he would take that in Bitcoin. At the time, Bitcoin was worth $64,293. Today, and this was as of uh, January 22nd, uh, that today it's worth $35,400. Uh Today, that deal is worth $412,953. Odell will be taxed on $750,000. Federal and uh, California state tax will be 50.3%. That means Odell, as of now, has netted $35,703 from the Rams contract this wow. year. Wow. So again, I'm sure he's got endorsements and oh, has sure. other stuff going on. So this is, this is just me saying you know well first i want to be clear that other athletes have done the same thing and have reaped the benefits you know since 2017 right so it's not always the situation where it's going to go down or else obviously no one would do it right sure um but this just serves to me as a reminder that you know to me cryptocurrency whether it's designated yet or not by the sec is a security and securities fluctuate and go up and down yes and crypto right now at least has higher volatility than most assets i would make that argument okay? yeah the person go ahead and i just want people you know to see this that you know this stuff can go down too you know even though that crypto has been in a raging bull market for a long time now this can go down right Absolutely. I mean, it's not a stable store of value, like, say, the American dollar, mm-hmm. right? Where the perception is... That's the key, stable. Stable. That's the key. Yeah. That's the key. So is it a is it a store of value? Yeah. But so are stocks, so are bonds, so are a lot of other asset classes like real estate, etc. Artwork. Artwork. You know, collectible wine. wine, collectible cars. You know, you can go on the list. But is it stable? And the and the the problem is is that, in my opinion, very pro crypto people aren't being honest with themselves in that it's not stable. Mm-hmm. It it fluctuates a lot, and you're confusing. I think is it a store of value? I think that that that's becoming more and more apparent. Mm-hmm. But is it a stable store of value? And I think we all know the answer to that. Right. We just have to be honest with ourselves for what it is. Yeah. Yeah. Something that moves 50% in a matter of five months is, is not a stable store of value. Right. And either, Odell, either way. Either again, way. I'm sure Odell doesn't need this money. So he's in a fortunate position sure. where he's like, I'm willing to hold on to it for the next 10 years yeah. if I believe in it, which, which is fine. Yeah. It's just you have to 
be able to deal with that type of volatility. Yeah, it goes back to what I was saying earlier about when you see like these stock returns. I think the example I had was like Monster Beverage a couple of weeks ago. And everyone wants to see what that 10 year or 15 year return number is. But you had to endure sell offs of upwards of 80 percent. Right. Mm -hmm. And so it's easy to sit there and, and, and talk about that without dealing with what's what's the trade off. Yeah, exactly. Uh, next was a tweet from Ryan Dietrich on February 22nd. Ryan said the S&P 500 officially moved into correction territory today. Again, this was on February 22nd. This is the 33rd correction or bear market since 1980. And for this statistic, and um, just to clarify things, correction is defined as a pullback uh, from peak to trough of at least 10%. Um, and a bear market is 20%. Yes. He says, take note, they aren't fun and no one likes it, but the return one year later is nearly 25% and higher 90% of the time. So again, he tweeted this graphic that's titled stocks tend to do well after corrections. Uh, and we'll have Jenna post this on the YouTube uh, video here uh, on the screen. So you should be able to see this right now. And then also on our show notes um, at Jessup Wealth on Twitter or Jessup Wealth Management on Facebook and LinkedIn. So we post this chart and it shows what the correction was for the S&P 500. Then it shows the one year return for the S&P after the lows and the two year return after the lows. Um, and again, the average one year return is 24.8% and the average two year return is 37.4%. Um, you know, if some people might listen to this and make the argument that, Hey, no one's buying at exactly the bottom, which is true. So, you know, this would be a good metric to see, you know, if the new highs were taken out, you know, what's the return there going forward, but mm -hmm. it doesn't negate the fact that it still shows, you know, Typically, when we have corrections, tend to be pretty good buying opportunities unless it turns into a full-on bear market or a recession. But Correct. we know, but looking back at history, that most of the time it doesn't happen like this. It could be this time. No one knows. Sure. But I think it's just uh, an interesting stat that, you know, when there's fear and people are hesitant to buy, it tends to be a pretty good time. Exactly, Mark. I mean, we got to remember, what's the trade-off of getting equity-like returns? we have to deal with the volatility aspect of those investments. Mm -hmm. And in peaks of stress, whether the stress is geopolitical, where, is the, where the stress is economical in a country, ultimately, that's what you have to deal with in the short term. Yeah. You're gonna have dislocations in price, but ultimately, things do normalize. And this is why people should not be investing in the market with a one-month or two-month time horizon, right? Mm -hmm. Correct. Have a longer term time horizon, everything else, in my opinion, work its way out if you have good underlying investments. Yeah, for sure. Uh, lastly, I have a tweet from Mark Unjwitter on uh, February 23rd. He said, note to self, so-called death cross is a lagging indicator that works reasonably well in secular bear markets like 1972, 73, 2000, 2002, 2008. They're still pitching this stuff hardcore. Yeah, but not so well in other environments. So again, let's kind of break this down for people. So he says, note to self, the so-called death cross is a lagging indicator. So what he means by this is 
the most popular uh, moving averages that people use to judge a stock's rate of trend is the 50-day simple moving average and the 200-day simple moving average. So it's exactly what it sounds like. It's the stock's average price over the past 50 days and over the past 200 days. So when you are in a uptrending environment for a certain security or asset class, the 200-day is a excuse me, below the 50-day and vice versa. When you're in a downtrend, the 200-day is above the 50-day because obviously the 50-day is capturing that more recent price data. Correct. So when he talks about a death cross, he's talking about the 50-day crossing below the 200-day. And people in the past have said, you know, this is a good indicator that there's a new downtrend beginning, but the data shows otherwise. Um, typically in the NASDAQ, when this happens, the average one year return, uh, one year later was 22, 22% or the median return, excuse me, median, median return was 22%. Uh, six months out, the median return was 13.8%. Uh, three months out, the median return was 7.17%. So, um, just because quote unquote, this asset or this stock or this whatever should be in a downtrend because there was a death cross of the 50 day and 200 day the data shows something completely different and again i'll have uh jenna post this on the video uh and the show notes here i'm glad you uh, shared to this. show all these instances right I'm glad you show this because in the financial media they pitch it like it's biblical right this exactly yeah yeah and again these are they're lagging indicators so it's not going to tell you what's going on in the future it's just showing you what has happened over you know the periods you use for that moving average data it should be a data point not a sole decision making data point correct yep so i'll turn it over to you all right, I got a couple today for listeners. First is an update on the tech sector. This will be in our show notes. It's a piece from Bespoke uh, Investment Group on February 23rd, Mark. Uh, the tech sector was underperforming the S&P 500 index by over 5% in the previous 50 trading days as of February 23rd. Again, we're talking about relative performance to the S&P 500 index. Why is this important? If you look at history, this does not happen often and has historically corrected. So this uh, chart will go back to 2010, and you can see relative performance is pretty extreme with technology underperforming lately. Mm -hmm. And I'll be curious if we're about to see, you know, a reverse trend on this in the coming months and quarters. If you look at history, it tends to do that. Mm -hmm. We'll see if it repeats. Fair? Fair, yeah. Okay, my next thing is an update on the commodity sector, okay? Now, what I'm about to discuss is an unpopular view, okay? And this is also kind of before a lot of the um, geopolitical risk was ramped up um, in the news headlines with Russia, Ukraine, which is still, you know, the humanitarian side is, 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 is very it's disturbing. Tragic. Yeah. yeah, it's tragic. So with that being said, this article from Bloomberg was written on February 25th at 10.43 a.m. The title of it, Mark, Commodity Prices Inflated by 40% uh, by Risk Premiums, says an analyst. That was the title of the article. I, I had to click it. It had me. It had me at hello. Baited you in. Had me at hello. <laughs> okay. So first off, this is just one opinion, but I'm sharing it because this is definitely the minority view right now. 
And when things, when the whole street mark is going one way, and it seems a pretty definitive one way, mm -hmm. I think you've got to start looking on the at, other side. On the other side. Mm -hmm. Okay. So prices for some key raw materials are substantially inflated and could fall a long way, quote unquote, if and when concerns ease about the Russian invasion of Ukraine. This is according to research firm Capital Economics. I'm quoting now. The prospect of supply disruptions stemming from international sanctions have added about 40% to the prices of oil, aluminum, copper. And this is according to the analyst at Capital Economics, um, Clarion Clancy wrote in a client uh, a note to clients. Similar premiums probably are swelling um, agriculture uh, commodity futures, he noted. Quote, although there is still a huge uncertainty over how the ongoing Russia-Ukraine conflict will play out, markets have been quick to price in the risks to commodity supply, said the analyst. We continue to forecast lower prices in the medium term on the assumption that these risk premiums will eventually um, reduce in size. So, Mark, why am I highlighting this? It's rare to see people thinking that commodity prices could come in, and guess what? They really could. That's a possibility. And what's the cure for high commodity prices? Higher commodity prices. Higher commodity prices. Starts to affect demand. People aren't going to pay those prices. Going back to what we were talking about with the consumer. So when you kind of look at this commodity surge, the chart that will be on our show notes is a chart from Bloomberg, and the index is the Bloomberg Commodity Spot Index. It's mm -hmm. a basket. I'm talking, it could be grains, it could be the metals, it could be the energies, mm -hmm. but you're seeing a drastic move higher. And it kind of goes back to what you and I discussed on the podcast last week in regards to equity prices and how poor they traded in January and February. Is commodities overly pricing in disruptions that won't actually end up occurring? And yeah. will these prices end up coming in? Again, unpopular view. Mm -hmm. No one's talking about this. Right. It is something at least I want to put on people's radar. Yeah, for sure. And it's going to be interesting because there are ways to get more oil uh, on chain to supply. Right. Mm -hmm. So there's levers to pull that the U.S. can, that Europe can. Yeah. Some of them will be unpopular and I won't go into them today, sure. but there is there are ways to get more supply online. There are if options. Prices are too high and it's hurting demand. Yep. Ultimately hurting the global economy. Correct. All right. Last thing I have, and I'm going to verbally share this. This is a market outlook piece from Argus Research on 224. And the research piece, Mark, was about three and a half pages. It was a good piece. Mm -hmm. uh, I know we uh, shared it internally here. I'm going to share just the conclusion part of this because I think they did a pretty good job. Okay. Okay. So I'm going to read this and then uh, we, you and I can have a quick roundtable. This mm -hmm. is my last piece. Quote, markets that were real bears, meaning bear markets like you discussed, sell-offs of in excess of 20% from high mm -hmm. to low, since 1980 have been associated with secular transitions. You know, the emergence of oil-rich Midwest and political um, Islam in the early 1980s, it said, valuation excess, that's the dot-com bubble and implosion, the financial earring, uh, engineering run amok, that's the CMO craze, housing collapse, Great Recession, along with a uh, black swan event, i.e. COVID. The bear markets around these life-altering events lasted on average 483 days and represented an average decline from peak to bottom of 41%. Here's where it gets important. 
near bear markets since 1980 have been associated with technology transitions, such as the advent of program trading in 1990, the one-time disruptions of things like long, long-term capital management in 1998. That was, that was ugly. I read a book on that, the long-term capital blow-up. Oh, it's interesting. People want a good story about investing blow-ups. I remember, rough. I mean, it was right before I started in the industry. And the stories I heard about it after the fact were pretty interesting because it was drastic in a V-shaped recovery. Yeah, it's nuts. Um, and partisan politics, such as the debt ceiling stare down in 2011, which we remember, the near bear markets around these events, which mainly are provided to be transitory, last and on average 128 days and represent an average peak to bottom decline of 18%. Yeah, and really quick, because I read this piece too by Argus, Matt, they, Argus, you know, categorize these, you know, uh, real bears or near bears and near bears is anything less than 20% or they briefly went over 20% but quickly jumped back and wasn't under a 20% correction for a long period of time. That's what they mean when they say near bear. Exactly. Yeah. Thank you for clarifying because the, where this is going to go is, you know, there's a lot of debate. Is this going to turn into a secular full-blown bear market that's going to last on average 483 days. Right. And that's another important dis distinction is when we're talking about a secular bear market, this is a prolonged period where, you know, stocks are uh, making lower lows and lower highs for a long period of time, Correct, which is sir. different from a cyclical bear market where for a short period of time, Markets drop quick, but then it recovers because it's still within a uh, excuse me a secular bull market, market. which is a, a lengthy uptrend. Yeah, and so for example, giving you the number again, those near bear markets since 1980 on average lasted 128 days, compared to the secular bears, which were 483. Right. Okay. So this is where kind of the meat of it. Now that we kind of laid the land out, in the current period, we are seeing few signs of pending economic collapse associated with previous secular bear markets. The current environment is characterized by solid industrial activity, wary but still spending consumers, rising but still low interest rates, and inflation that has yet to peak. GDP, which ran at nearly 6% rate across the 2021, is on track to decelerate to the mid-plus 3% range for this year. That is still well above pre-pandemic 10-year average for the United States of 2% range, as well as the Goldilocks level of 3 in terms of valuations, price to earnings ratio, not as popular with me, but I'm still mm -hmm. going to quote it, is in the low 20s and have come down, but not too much from a uh, PE on a forward four quarter EPS still in the high teens. Until or unless we see evidence of a deep global economic erosion, we are assuming that the current stock weakness will also prove to be shorter and shallower than the declines experienced in the classic secular bear markets. So I agree with this. I know it's a little long winded, but at the end of the day, I think the market's trying to battle. We know this is a, a correction. Is it short term or is it long term? Mm -hmm. And the underlying fundamentals is kind of telling when you look at history, most likely this will be more of a near uh, bear market, not a full blown secular downtrend that lasts multiple years. Mm -hmm. And I think until that data changes, I'm agreeing with Argus on this. Yeah, I think that it's it's good. And, you know, this is like anything else in markets. It can change, you know, like that. Absolutely. Right. So, you know, I think important to you know point out that none of this stuff is predictive in nature. Um, 
But, you know, as we've pointed out several times on this show before, the stock market goes up more than it goes down, clearly right. over time, right? That's right. So, and earnings, earnings drive those prices like we talked about last week. Right. Yep. Yep. Back to you. So uh, the financial planning topic of the week comes from uh, Jeff Levine, who is the chief planning officer at Buckingham Wealth Management. And Jeff gave an update on IRS regulations regarding the SECURE Act. And there were a lot of changes that came to our industry with this SECURE Act, right? And the major change was the elimination of the stretch IRA for inherited IRAs. So if you inherited an IRA prior to prior to 2020, regardless if you were a spouse or not, we'll leave spouses out of it, regardless if you were a cousin, if you were a friend, if you were two years younger than the, the person that died or Child. 20 years younger than the person that died, you were able to stretch out those required minimum distributions over your lifetime. So you can keep that money invested and keep it growing for you. The IRS would just require you to take out a small percentage every year. Yep. But that changed. So um, there are other uh, eligible designated beneficiaries, they call them, that can continue to stretch. For the um, most part. For the most part. Non-spouse. Right. So, um, and that's, you know, I won't get into that. But uh, the IRS just came out with new regulations on this, new comments on this. Interesting. And, and again, it's important to notice that these regulations are not final. Okay. And a final version is anticipated to be released before the end of the year. Okay. So the, the two really major updates were for non-eligible designated beneficiaries. So these are people who inherit a retirement account who are not spouses mm -hmm. and uh, they're at least 10 years younger than the, than the deceased person. Okay? okay. So these people who inherit a retirement account from someone who has passed away before the deceased was age 72... They simply have to empty the retirement account by the end of the 10th year after the date of death. So nothing has changed there. Okay? okay. However, if the deceased dies on or after their 72nd birthday, the account needs to be depleted within 10 years of death and take RMDs over that 10 year period each year. They're ratcheting it up, baby. You can't wait till year 10. Yeah. So this comes it, in big for Roths. Yeah, it does. It does. But you know, this just adds complication in my opinion, even though, you know, in most scenarios, that's probably going to benefit on most -tax beneficiaries money. on pre-tax money because you're, you're taking that money out one tenth over the next 10 years. So you don't get hit with this massive tax bill at the end of the 10th year. But it's just like unnecessary complication. And like you said, yeah, that's going to stink for Roths because they could have let that Roth IRA grow for 10 years without taking anything out and take it out. And it's completely tax free. Right. Yeah. So, again, these are comments that have not been finalized yet, um, but more or less, I guess. I can say that I'm not surprised because, you know, the tax code is already all over the place, in my opinion. So it doesn't shock me to see that they're complicating this and muddying the Even waters more. more. Um, there were other updates um, that Jeff provided in, in this big, long tweet thread that we'll have uh, Jenna post that 
um, online as well for us. Um, if you want to see all of the comments that the IRS made about it and potential changes. But those were the two biggies that I would think people would want to hear about. And again, it's all talk until it's finalized. And once that is finalized, obviously, we'll have a longer and in-depth conversation about this. Interesting. And I wonder what part of, you know, a bill or this is purely coming from the IRS, of course, it says IRS regulation, you know, just curious um, what else they could be changing here. Right. You know? Hmm. Yeah. And with this stuff, you know, things change pretty quickly uh, oh, yeah. and on a dime. Oh, so yeah. absolutely. Uh, we'll keep everybody uh, abreast of what uh, the latest and greatest is. But there, there should be final. Their goal is to have final regulation on this before the end of the year. Okay. So that's all I had, Matt, before we leave it there for the week. Anything you want to add? Um, I think that you're going to see things be volatile next couple of weeks, especially geopolitical headlines. I think the market's going to try to decipher what the Fed's now going to do on March 16th. Um, I would not be trying to time this market. This is not a market to time. I think it's very, very difficult given the volatility. So stay focused on your long-term you know, goals and objectives, risk tolerances, and just know it's going to be up big one day, down big the next. This is short-term. This is a lot of emotional-driven trading, and ultimately it will calm down, um, but it could take longer than people think. Right. Yeah, prepared. perfectly said. All right, everybody. Thanks for listening to episode number 139 of the Independent Advisors podcast, and we will see you next week. Take care, everyone. Thank you for listening to the Independent Advisors podcast. If you're interested in hearing more, hit the subscribe button so you can be notified every time a new episode gets released. Feel free to share with friends, family, and follow us on Twitter at Jessup Wealth, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Mark and Matt will continue to share beneficial information on these social media sites. Also, check out the podcast tab on their website. That's www.jessupwealthmanagement.com. There you'll find links to every episode of The Independent Advisors. Have questions or topics you want to discuss on the show? Message us on Twitter, LinkedIn, or send an email with the words questions and topics in the subject line to inquiries at jessupwealthmanagement.com. We'll talk about it right here on the podcast. Certain sections of this commentary may contain forward-looking statements based on reasonable expectations, estimates, projections, and assumptions. Forward-looking statements are not guarantees of future performance and involve certain risks and uncertainties, which are difficult to predict. All indices are unmanaged and are not available for direct investment by the public. Past performance is not indicative of future results. This podcast is provided for general informational purposes only and does not constitute either tax, legal, or financial advice. Although we do go to great lengths to make sure our information is accurate and useful, we recommend you consult a tax preparer, professional tax advisor, financial advisor, or lawyer regarding your specific circumstances. Investing involves risk, including the loss of principal. No strategy can guarantee any objective or goal will be achieved. Advisory services offered through Commonwealth Financial Network, a registered investment advisor.